stand together and um, we are looking at our sixth installment, Pastor Mandy, six. And next week we're going to conclude this series on the seven books of Revelation, the seven letters of Revelation, um, in a very creative way. And uh, you don't want to miss that, but uh, that's a little advertisement. So today we're looking at the church in Philadelphia, and I'm going to read this text for you from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, and this is what it says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your deeds. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world, on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, never Shall he go out of it, and I will write on him or her the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name, he or she who has an ear. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, give us today, we pray, ears to hear spiritual ears, to hear what the Spirit is saying to us as a church and glad tidings this morning and to us as individual Christ followers and those maybe today who have not yet said yes to your offer of love and forgiveness. Lord, give us spiritual eyes to see and hearts to understand and minds to comprehend and to give us your grace and through your Holy Spirit. And to live out what it means to be Christ followers in practical, tangible, and meaningful ways. And Father, we ask this in the name of your generous and extravagant exhibition of love in Jesus Christ and for the work and ministry of, his, of your Holy Spirit, His Spirit, that takes everything that you've accomplished in him and makes it possible and applicable in our lives. We love you. We praise you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. And why don't you be seated? Philadelphia was the last of the seven cities of Revelation that the letters are written to, to be established, to be built. And um, it's interesting what uh, goes on there. And the name actually means the city of brotherly love. Now, 
Forgive me for this because I'm a sinner. But every time I read the text on Philadelphia, you know what comes in my mind? You know what comes in my mind? Philadelphia freedom. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Oh, you bunch of sinners. You're just like I am. By the way, for those of you who know, it's an Elton John song, but we're going to leave that alone. The city of brotherly love, and here's why it's called that. The name commemorates the loyalty and the devotion of Attalus II and his brother Eumenes. Now, Attalus took the crown when he heard the rumor that his brother had been defeated in battle, but when it was discovered that it was only a rumor and that his brother actually returned from Greece, Attalus gave his brother back the crown. And Attalus resisted the pressure from the Roman Empire, from Rome itself, to actually assassinate his brother and to take the crown and the throne for himself to the city of Philadelphia. And of course, this famed loyalty and love gave this city its name. It literally means Philadelphia, the lover of his brother. But there's also this. When we look at this letter that we just read in our text to the city or to the Christians of Philadelphia, it is very similar to the letter that was written to the Christians in Smyrna. Both letters are meant to be encouragement and, and to strengthen the faithful believers there. And by the way, it is in these two situations and only two situations in Philadelphia and Smyrna that God only has good things, positive things to say to them. Now, if we recall back when we talked about Smyrna, Jesus says this to them. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Smyrna actually literally means bitterness, and the bitterness comes from their bitter experience of being in a place where they are in trouble and they are in poverty. Now, in the secular value system of our world, we would never consider a church, consider a church who is poor and in trouble or experiencing tribulation to be a great church or a successful church, but Jesus does. He says that they are rich. And Jesus says something comparable to the Christians in Philly. But before we get to that, we want to look first at the signature of Jesus in our text. Now, when we write our letters and our emails, we put our signature at the bottom of the document. Well, in the biblical text, it was the complete opposite. The signature of the person writing the letter was actually at the very beginning of the letter. And this is what we're seeing in our text. The letter begins with Jesus' signature, and Jesus' signature here has three things that we want to talk about. The first one is that he is the one who is, these are the words of the Holy One. Notice what it says here, not a Holy One, but the Holy One. And the word holy, among many things, means to be 
separated. And what that means for us is that Jesus is the Holy One who is separate from everybody else, that he is in a category all by himself. In Exodus, it asks these two questions. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And then the Psalms actually ask the question again, for who, is in, for who in the skies can compare to the Lord, and who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? Now the second part of Jesus' signature is that these are the words of the Holy One and the True One. True. It means, of course, the genuine article, real, authentic, sincere, original. It reminds us that God is not some projection of our collective imagination. It reminds us here that the, that the Jesus that is, being, that is speaking here in this text is the God of the Bible. And then what follows is interesting, which is the heart and soul of what we want to talk about today. These are the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, and who opens and no one can shut, and who shuts and no one can open. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. You can count them if you want, or you can take my word for it. 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and in those 404 verses in the book of Revelation, there are 518 references, partial and whole, from the Old Testament from Exodus, from Daniel, from Ezekiel, from Zephaniah, from Zechariah. And the words that are in our text in verse 7, who has the key of David who opens and no one can shut and who shuts and no one opens, are borrowed from Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 to 25. Now, that's a lot of text. And I hope you can see it, but I want to read it to you this morning because it is important to where we need to go. The text in Isaiah is talking about a man by the name of Eliakim, and this is what it says. And in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him. And will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house, 
And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to the flagons. And in that day, declares the Lord, the, the peg that has fastened, sorry, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. Now, Eliakim was the person who was over the entire, the entire house of King Hezekiah in the Old Testament. He was the person in charge of Elkiah's house. Obviously, a place of honor. But what it actually means is this, is that Eliakim actually had complete and full control and access to all of King Hezekiah's resources and treasures and assets. Now, in case we do not see the connection, the connection is simply this, that Eliakim is an Old Testament symbolic representative of Jesus Christ. And you know in the text where we read these words and the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, with that aside, just as Eliakim is the head of, or was the head and in charge of King Hezekiah's house, we understand that Jesus is the head over God's house and kingdom. In the book of Colossians, we are told this three separate times. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and he, talking about Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. And then in the book of Hebrews, we read these words about Jesus, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house indeed, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. So we understand that Jesus is the head over God's house and kingdom, but it also tells us that he has the key of David, and the key of David is the symbol of Christ's power and authority. Matthew tells us that he has the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And to add to that, not only does Jesus have all of God's authority and power, it tells us that Jesus Christ has the key to our life. Jesus has the key to my life. Jesus as the key to your life, to our lives. Because he says this, notice what he says. Behold, I have set before you, 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 and all you that are watching online. And Jesus says, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Do you know why? Because of this. 
that Jesus not only has the key to your life and my life, and all of God's authority and power, but he also has the key to the enemy. And if you're not sure about that, then listen to this text in Romans, in, Re- in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, where it says that Jesus has the keys to death and Hades. He has the keys to death and hell. And we are told further in Revelation 9, 1, that he has the key to the bottomless pit, to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And of course, some of us will remember the words out of Isaiah chapter 47, verse 17, where it says, and listen to the words now, very important, the language, that no weapon that is fashioned against you, me, us, shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Here it is. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me declares the Lord. Now on top of all of that, Jesus Christ has the key to every situation and circumstance in our lives. And in our world in every circumstance and every situation. How do we know this? Well, in a couple of ways. First of all, Jesus said himself in Revelation, or sorry, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he said that all authority and power is given to me. And even in our own text, there are nine, count them, nine I statements made by Jesus in the letter to Philadelphia. I know, I have, I will, and I am. And what Jesus opens, no one can shut. And what Jesus shuts, no one can open. Not only is that true in Philadelphia, but that's also true in your life and in my life. For us, individually and for us as a whole. But there's also this. Just as Eliakim had complete and full access to Ezekiah's resources and riches and assets, God has given Jesus complete and full access and control over all of God's assets, over all of heaven's resources and supplies and riches and possessions. Listen to what Colossians says. All the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, Jesus is the head over God's house and kingdom. Jesus has complete power and authority. Jesus has the key to our life. He has the key to the enemy. He has the key to every situation and access to all the resources and all of the treasures and supplies of heaven. Now, I want you to keep those six, those five things in the filing cabinet of your mind. 
Just keep them there as we move forward. Because those five things are important to what Jesus says to the Philadelphian Christians then and to what he says to us today. Because Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Now, we see many open doors in the Bible. When you read through the Bible, the the statement open doors comes up a lot. But one of the greatest is in Revelation 4.1, where John says, and after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, an open door is an invitation. And we know, of course, that Jesus not only is the door, but we understand that Jesus opens spiritual doors. I'll get this right in a moment. We're told that in 2 Corinthians, we're told it again in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Now, Philadelphia was known as the gateway or the doorway to the east. The city and the church was strategically located. So Jesus opens spiritual doors, but listen to this. He also opens doors of opportunity to people, to places, to positions. He opens doors of opportunity for you and for me. And of course, we can't move on unless we also mention that Jesus opens eternal doors. If we miss that, we've missed the point altogether. So I want you to add this sixth one to our list. That Jesus is head over God's house and kingdom. That Jesus has all authority and power. That Jesus has the key to your life. He has the key to the enemy. And he has the key to every situation, and he has complete control and access of all of heaven's resources. And Jesus opens doors. Now, these are important because of this. The implications of having little power. Now, the Philadelphian Christians, as we said earlier, are like those in Smyrna. In Smyrna, they are oppressed and poor. In Philadelphia, they are weak. They have little power or they have little strength. Now, why that matters is this. Because we are not told the reason for or the source of their little power. We're not told that. And I believe one of the reasons why we're not told that and why it's left vague and we are left in the dark as to the source of or the reason for them having little power is for this purpose. So that we could identify with them. 
because we are them and they are us. Have we ever felt that way ourselves? Weak? Have we ever felt at times that we felt weak in ourselves? I know that I have. And I'm pretty sure that you have. And maybe, maybe that describes exactly how some of us we are feeling this morning. We feel weak. We feel like we have little power in ourselves. Now I want to I want to change the language a little bit and I want to just alter the terminology just a bit sort of to broaden it out, this idea of weakness. What other word or words could we use and would we use to describe the Philadelphian Christians' source of and reason for their little power? The weakness that they felt in themselves is Disability, a word, a good word. What about weakness? Is that a good word? What about fragile? Is that too strong a word? What about frailty? What about disadvantaged? What about inadequacy, insecurity, incapacity. What word would we describe for ourselves as the reason for or the source of our sense of little power, of feeling weak in ourselves? Maybe it's a wound from our past. That's the reason for or the source of our weakness. Maybe it's a a wish of something we wish we had not done. Or maybe it's regret of something that we wish we had done. Maybe it's a message that we received about ourselves from significant others. The message that we received from our parents, from a significant adult or a person of authority, whether that that message is positive or negative. You will never amount to anything. You can be whatever you want to be. 
So maybe it's the message that we've received from, our, uh, from other significant people and people of authority in our lives that we received about ourselves. <clears throat> maybe it's a reputation that we perceive that we have been given and that we have received. It could be spiritual. It could be emotional. It could be relational. It could be psychological. It could be financial. It could be physical. But whatever it may be in your life and my life, that fits into the category of the source of and the reason for us having little power and feeling weak in ourselves causes us to have some tendencies. And one of those tendencies is that sometimes whatever the reason for and the source of our weakness that we feel or the little power that we feel we have in ourselves, it can become an obstacle for not seeing the open door. <clears throat> and sometimes even when we see the open door, sometimes that weakness can become an excuse for not walking through the door. And our logic works something like this. God cannot use me because, and then add in whatever it is the source of or the reason for why you feel or we feel weak and have little power and strength in ourselves. Or maybe it's I'm too weak to and then add in whatever it is. Hmm. I was, when I was preparing this, this week, I was thinking about a person who I know um, who had the call to pastoral ministry. And it was evident. And they wouldn't do it because they felt weak. What's our excuse? What's our reason? Tim Hansel wrote this. Afraid to fail, we no longer risk. Afraid that someone will see behind our image, we no longer share. Afraid that we will appear to need help, we can no longer be vulnerable. Afraid to appear not religious enough to some we no longer can confess. We withdraw into a petty world consumed in emptiness and fear, covered with the thick shell, worshiping an impotent God. And he goes on and says, the tragic result is that in our fear of becoming childlike, in our fear of becoming a fool for Christ, in our fear of being seen as we are, we discover too late that it is impossible to be fully human and fully alive. 
And when we feel this weakness, when we feel this little power, when we feel this little strength, the fairly normal reaction is to ask God for an extraction. Those of us who are familiar with the biblical text, more familiar with the biblical text, I think a good example of this would be Paul's thorn in the flesh, where Paul says in first or in Second Corinthians 12, he says, "So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh." What's our thorn? Weakness. Source of and reason for our little strength. A messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. That's normal. We got some hiccup, some problem, some weakness, some regret. Some insecurity, some inadequacy. And the first thing to do is say, God, take this away from me. What happens when that doesn't happen? What happens when God doesn't take it away from us? Here's what happens grace comes. Grace comes. Listen to the rest of the text now. But he said to me, God said to me, to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Say it. His grace is sufficient for me. Say it again. You believe that? If you do, it should change us. For my power is made perfect in weakness, God says. Therefore, Paul writes, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, my little strength, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities and insecurities and inabilities and disabilities. And the list goes on for when I am weak, I am made strong We say, God, I want to be free from it. And God says, by my grace, I will make you free in it. Little power causes us to trust. And God says, no, I'm not going to take it away. There will not be an extraction. I want you to accept it, and I will be the difference. And so that brings us then to the secret of grace. And the secret of grace is tension. How many of us like picking berries? Raise your hand if you like. Yeah? How many of you have picked blueberries? This is a great place for blueberries. 
Uh, my, my father was a great berry picker. And therefore, all of us five children were also pretty good berry pickers. And one of the things that my father loved to do, other than pick bake apples, and that's a whole Labrador thing, you don't want to know about that, um, is that he loved picking blueberries. And of course, in Sudbury, we know this. He taught me that one of the best places to find good blueberries was a place where there was a forest fire. And out of that environment becomes an incredible, fertile place for blueberries. And I have picked gallons of them. He would say, look for a place that's burnt over, and you'll find some great fruit. By the way, the name Philadelphia, Philadelphia the, and the surrounding area was called the burnt land. The burnt land. You know why? Here's why. The city <clears throat> sat on the edge of a volcano plain. And because of that, Philadelphia was known for its lush grapes and its rich wines. And here's the tension. Because the city was on the edge of a volcanic plain, over time the magma and the ash created this incredible, excellent environment for growing grapes. Philly was the Niagara fruit belt of Asia Minor. Wine was one of the major industries in Philadelphia and was one of the things that made it very prosperous. Do we see the tension? Living on the edge of an active volcano? It's simply this. On the one hand, when you live on the edge of a volcano plain, there is always the risk of earthquakes, lava, and ash. But on the other hand, the lava and the ash transform the plain into a rich, fertile field for fruit. We know the old saying, right? In order to get wine, the grapes have to be crushed. In order for to get olive oil, the olives must be pressed. And one of my favorite quotes, one that I've used a couple of times here is this, that God knows how to exalt a person without inflating them, and he knows how to humble a person without degrading them. And Jesus says in verse 8, I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, they could have bailed. They could have said, no, we are too weak. We are too feeble. They could have thrown in the towel. They could have quit. <clears throat> they could have said no. I love the way the text ends. I love the way the text ends because it reminds us of how Christianity is supposed to be. Listen to what he says. Jesus says in verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have 
so that no one may seize your crown. In other words, hold on to your hat. Being a Christ follower was supposed to be and intended to be the ride of our life. Following Jesus and the Christian, advent, Christian experience was intended to be an adventure. One of faith where you don't know what's coming around the other corner, but it's exciting nonetheless. Someone said, if we are going to wait until we understand everything or see everything before we trust in God, then we're going to miss out on a lot of blessings. And if you and I, if we are going to wait until we have it all together, and we got our weaknesses under control, and we got our little strength figured, little strength and little power figured out, then it might be too late. Jesus is the one who holds the key of David. The key to your life and my life, to the enemy, and to all of the resources of heaven. You ready? And Jesus as the key to your future. Jesus as the key to our future. And Jesus says, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You see, this is what grace does. It takes little power and turns it into a pillar of strength in God's presence. Would you stand with me? I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. I want to end our service with victory and joy and celebration and hope. It's Thanksgiving for Pete's sake. But just a private moment for all of us. Those of us watching at home and those of us in the room. Hey, what's your weakness? What's the source of and what's the reason for your little strength? What's the source of us feeling like we have little power in ourselves? What is it? And whatever it is this morning, what is it that's keeping you from walking through the door? Because our text says that he has an open door for you, me, and you. So what is it that's keeping us from walking through the door? Fear? Insecurity? Weakness? So right now what I want you to do at home and here in the room, whatever that is, 
and you know what it is right now. You, you already know. The moment I start talking about it in the sermon, you went internal and you knew exactly what it is in your life. Because I know what it is in my life. And I'm not telling you, and I don't want you to tell me. It's nobody else's business but ours. So I want you to take a moment now and just tell the Lord. He already knows, by the way, but he wants you to know that you know. Just tell him what it is. Just lift it to him. And just say, Lord, I am consciously aware of this. Whatever it is. And I want to give it to you. And I'm going to give it to you today. Just give it to him. Father, wherever people are watching and listening online, for all of us in this room, upper and lower and in the foyer, Lord, you've heard. We know what our weakness is. We know the source. We know the reason for our weakness in ourselves. And we confess it to you and we hold it up to you. And we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who has the key to the door of my life, who has the key to the enemy and who has the key to all of the resources of heaven and who has the key to our future. We don't ask you to extract it. We don't ask you today that it could become an excuse or an obstacle, but today that it would become a vehicle of your grace. And Lord, that in my weakness, your strength is made perfect. Yes. That where I want it to go and leave me, Lord, you say no. My grace is sufficient for you. I've got you in my hand and I know the key. And I have the key and the door is open to you. And you want us to walk through it. Let your grace descend upon this place. Whether it's at home, in a bedroom, or a living room, or a kitchen, or even a vehicle, or whether it's in this room, this auditorium, let your grace, let your grace come. And let my weakness, Lord, let my weakness, my little strength, my little power in myself become a means of your strength being perfected and grace being perfected in my life. And to you I give praise and I give thanks. I worship you. I love you. I bless you. I honor you. Now put your hands together and let's praise the Lord. Let's give him praise. Hallelujah. Pastor Scott.
what we want. Listen to this. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Show you my weakness. Mm -hmm. My failures and flaws. But you've seen them all and you call me a friend. Cause the God of the mountains the God of the valley and there's not a place your mercy and grace will find me again oh there's nothing better than you oh there's nothing better than you 